In a 2019 article produced by National Geographic, hikers walking off the beaten path is the number one reason that they require search and rescue. This means that even those who are injured, or those subjects to sudden bad weather, do not require assistance as much as those who simply get lost exploring off the trail. It's incredible and terrifying to think that something so simple can lead to such danger and death. In this episode of Cold Case Detective, we'll be taking a look at three cases of people who went missing while hiking. Justin Alexander Shetler. Justin Shetler was born in Florida, and his interest in traveling, the outdoors, and wilderness survival sparked when his mother withdrew him from regular high school, age 16, and sent him to Wilderness Awareness School near Seattle. It was here that Justin bonded with his instructor, and the pair began to go on expeditions together. Afterwards, Justin began to teach at a children's camp associated with the school for a while. Upon finishing the school himself, he held multiple jobs and fronted a band who toured as far as Japan. In 2009, Justin joined a friend in Miami working for a tech startup company, allowing him to not only live a life of luxury, but to retire age 32 in 2013. From here, Justin sold most of his belongings and began traveling, documenting his experiences on his blog, Adventures of Justin. He spent two and a half years traveling South Africa, Asia, and the United States. Justin was 35 in 2016 when he visited India. He had grand plans to make the three-day trek to a holy site called Mantalai Lake with a Hindu holy man around the end of August. He also intended in staying in a cave for weeks, emulating the life of the holy people. Four days prior, he had blogged about his schedule for the trip, saying, quote, I should return mid-September. If I'm not back by then, don't look for me. Friends and family described this blog post as distressing. It seemed like Justin was constantly pushing himself to do more and more. To reach the lake, Justin would need to travel through Parvati Valley, which has only one road in and one road out. The valley attracts tens of thousands of tourists a year, but has a rather bleak history. Since 1988, at least two dozen tourists have died or disappeared in and around the valley. Many families have suspected foul play by local drug mafias and holy people due to the fact that it is an isolated area with a lack of regulation when it comes to visitors. Few of these families ever receive answers. Justin was described as a seasoned traveler and an experienced outdoorsman with excellent wilderness survival skills, so it seemed unlikely that this trek would be any different to all of those he'd been on before. And it wasn't, not really. But once the 35-year-old returned from the valley, things took a turn. Justin was last seen on September 3rd, photographed returning from his trip after encountering some hikers he had met previously. The hikers told authorities that he hadn't eaten in two days, was severely underweight, and was exhausted. Reportedly, the holy man Justin had been traveling with had passed by them just 30 minutes prior. 
The group asked Justin to join them, but he declined, saying that he wanted to get back to his things and an internet connection so he could rest and then edit his latest video. After this point, Justin drops off the map entirely. When no one could reach him, the Indian authorities were contacted. The holy man Justin had traveled with, a man named Sadhu, was arrested and spent eight days in a prison cell. He was then found on October 21st, 2016, hanging by his loincloth when a guard returned from a toilet break. It's unknown if Sadhu had killed himself due to the mistreatment he undoubtedly suffered from the guards, or whether he was murdered, or if he took his own life due to guilt he felt because he had something to do with Justin's disappearance. According to Outside Online, Sadhu was not, by most accounts, an authentic holy man, and was described as being rough and crude. Justin had allegedly been warned to be careful when dealing with him. To add to this, upon hearing that he was missing, three Indian hikers came forward to claim that they'd seen Justin arguing with Sadhu. Justin had told them that he was tired and hungry and wanted to descend. Another article from Slate.com presents Sadhu in an even worse light, characterizing him as a criminal who sold his family and his home in Nepal to come to India. For his part, before the authorities were involved, Sadhu told his friends that Justin was crazy and had gone off without him. Police found that the last time Sadhu was seen with Justin, they had a porter along for the journey as well. The holy man told police that the porter had been sent up ahead as they traveled and Justin had followed. Meanwhile, Sadhu had hung back due to his knees hurting. When he finally caught up with the porter, Justin was nowhere to be seen. The pair descended from the lake, opting not to inform the police. The porter repeated this story when he was interviewed by authorities. After Justin went missing, his mother, Susie, flew to India with a friend of Justin's, meeting with the US Embassy before traveling north to the mountains. Meanwhile, friends of his began searching on foot with a group of Indian trekking guides who knew the area well. A trail below the lake eventually led to the discovery of a bamboo flute staff, a black waterproof backpack, a grey scarf, and a red lighter, which had been given to Justin recently by a Russian man he'd befriended before setting off on his journey to the Parvati Valley. Indian authorities initially suspected that Justin had taken drugs and or fallen into the river, but after learning about his wilderness survival skills, they instead proposed, given his eerie final blog post, that he had actively chosen to go off the grid. While police say that all efforts were made to locate the missing 35-year-old, a source told Outside Online that they were unequipped and unmotivated simply trying to appease Justin's family and the US Embassy. Law enforcement found Justin's motorbike still in the place where he'd left it before he traveled into the valley, his belongings untouched. He had never made it to his vehicle after speaking with the group of hikers on September 3rd. That much is clear. To this day, his case remains unsolved. Jeffrey John Zoltowski Born March 19, 1970, Jeffrey John Zoltowski was 23 years old when he went missing from Hawaii. A graduate of Livona Stevenson High School and a student at Wayne State University in Michigan, Jeffrey had traveled to Hawaii to hike and explore and figure out what exactly he wanted to do with his life. 
A committed vegetarian who refused to wear anything leather, Jeffrey's loved ones described him as a compassionate and caring young man who did volunteer work regularly. He was also close to both of his divorced parents. Further proof of Jeffrey's kind nature was shown when, during his first few days on the island, Jeffrey met a man who'd become separated from his friends while hiking, and offered to walk him out of the trail if need be, staying with him until a rescue helicopter arrived. Jeffrey was wearing white shorts and a purple tie-dye t-shirt when he was last seen on March 31st, 1993, hiking in the Wailua Valley. After making his way through the trail, he eventually flagged down a helicopter from the Department of Land and Natural Resources, claiming his feet were blistered and bleeding, and that he was too tired to make the 14-mile hike back to civilization, asking for a ride back instead. The pilot of the helicopter deemed the matter to be non-life-threatening, and so refused to carry Jeffrey as a passenger. He did mention, however, that the 23-year-old could charter a plane, but it would cost him $650, money that Jeffrey simply didn't have. The pilot then offered to take the student's 60-pound backpack to the DLNR service yard on the island, to which Jeffrey agreed. When Jeffrey first went missing, nobody noticed. He'd told family members that he was going camping for two weeks, so when they didn't hear from him, they weren't alarmed. When two weeks turned into three and four weeks, they assumed he'd maybe met someone and was swept up in a new romance. Meanwhile, Jeffrey's backpack at the DLNR service yard continued to sit unclaimed for over a month. It took 41 days before somebody finally realized that it hadn't been collected and a missing persons report was filed for Jeffrey. The search for the 23-year-old is largely undocumented online. The only thing that's clear is that search parties found no trace of the student along the trail or off the beaten path. Jeffrey's father, Ron, flew to Hawaii in May of 1993, spending 35 days and $39,000 of his own money searching for his missing son. He also appeared on Oprah and other network television shows, although no new leads came from these appeals to the public. There is one known possible sighting, near a homeless shelter and Kmart in Honolulu. This sighting took place on July 28, 2001, eight years after Jeffrey was last seen. A woman reported that the man called himself Sam or Samuel and panhandled for money from cars that were stopped in the traffic. He had heavy facial scarring, a limp, and slurred speech, a possible indication that he'd suffered a severe head injury in the past. This sighting has not been confirmed to be Jeffrey, and investigators have never been able to locate this homeless man. No one at the shelter recognized Jeffrey's photograph. A separate witness said, in regards to law enforcement following the lead, that the unidentified man just disappeared afterwards. If it was Jeffrey, it's unknown how he managed to get to a different island. One article from 1995 reported that a niece of a friend of Ron's told her family that she'd been on Kauai Island and seen, quote, a kid who was missing from Molokai. This niece was unaware that her family knew the Zoltowskis and she has not been located for an interview. In 2006, Ron told of how much time he spent at home waiting for a phone call or email that would have all the answers. A psychic once told him that Jeffrey is still alive, and he continued to hold on to that last glimmer of hope. 
Meanwhile, Joseph Self, a former Honolulu police officer who was assigned to the case, believes that the young man perished somewhere in the wilderness. There are a few theories tossed about online when it comes to Jeffrey's case. Some believe he fell victim to the elements, whilst others believe he's alive but suffering from amnesia. But one thing everyone agrees on is the absurdity that he was not reported missing for 41 days, despite his backpack being in the DLNR service yard unclaimed for that length of time, even more so since Jeffrey had complained to one of the pilots. Why didn't the pilot notice he hadn't picked it up? Many are also confused as to why the pilot took Jeffrey's backpack in the first place, given that it contained a first aid kit among other essential hiking supplies. Jeffrey's mother, Karen, passed away in November of 2005 during heart surgery, having never found an answer to what happened to her son. To this day, Ron remains ever hopeful that any information will be found in the case of Jeffrey John Zoltowski. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. Amy Joy Rowe Bechtel. Amy Joy Rowe Bechtel was born in Santa Barbara, California in August of 1972 to Duane and Joanne Rowe. She was the youngest of four siblings and started running when she was in the sixth grade. Shortly before her disappearance, Amy graduated from the University of Wyoming, where she studied exercise physiology, was a competitive long distance runner, and met Steve Bechtel. The couple married in 1996, after dating for four years and moved to Lander, a small town in Wyoming, upon graduating. By all accounts, 24-year-old Amy was a well-liked woman with an interest in photography and big ambitions to try out for the 2000 Summer Olympics. Loved ones described her as determined, thoughtful, and trusting. On the morning of July 24th, 1997, Amy told her husband Steve that she planned to run errands in town after hosting a child's weightlifting class at the Wind River Fitness Center, a class which lasted just one hour and a half. After teaching, Amy stopped in at Camera Connection, a photo store near her home, around 2.30 p.m. From here, the 24-year-old dropped in at Gallery 331, where she spoke to the proprietor, Greg Wagner. Upon being interviewed, Wagner noted that Amy seemed to be in a hurry, repeatedly glancing at her watch during their conversation. Other accounts of Amy that day describe her as being upbeat. Her visit to Gallery 331 is the last confirmed sighting of Amy. Afterwards, authorities believe Amy drove to Shoshone National Forest to practice the course for an upcoming 10K that she was enrolled to compete in. An eyewitness driving on Loop Road through the forest that afternoon claims to have seen a woman matching Amy's description running along the road wearing black shorts and a yellow t-shirt, like those Greg Wagner had seen her wearing earlier that day. 
Meanwhile, it was 4.30 in the afternoon by the time Steve Bechtel returned home. He had spent the day with a friend, and as soon as he stepped through the door of his house, he noticed his wife wasn't there. He waited a few hours for her to return, assuming she had been held up somewhere. Amy did not come home. At 10.30 p.m., Steve called the police to report his wife missing. A few hours later, at 1 a.m. on the morning of the 25th, Amy's car was discovered parked on a turnout at Burnt Gulch in Lander. The car was unlocked, her keys were under her to-do list, and her sunglasses also remained, but her wallet was gone. This was odd, those who knew the 24-year-old reported, as she never took it out running with her. By 3 a.m., an extensive search was underway with law enforcement. It's noted that Amy's friends and family had begun searching before authorities arrived, meaning that it is possible, no matter how well-intentioned, that they contaminated the crime scene. A small footprint similar to Amy's was found alongside Loop Road, but it was destroyed before it could be positively matched. Her car was also never fully investigated. A friend ended up driving it home, meaning it likely lost crucial evidence, if there was any there at all. One thing to note about this case is the extremely shoddy police work. This is thought to be because the original investigator, David King, used the case for his own personal career gains. In 1998, King was elected as sheriff, but he resigned two years later due to allegations of impropriety, and was later convicted for stealing cocaine from law enforcement's evidence storage locker. Yellow ribbons began appearing everywhere. The idea of the brightly colored fabric being all across the town was to raise awareness for Amy's case, and asking her if she was out there to come home. Psychics stepped forward, some offering clues whilst others asked for money. A bottle was found in a river near Main Street in Lander, and inside was a handwritten note, reading, Help! I'm being held captive in Sinks Canyon. Amy. The handwriting was confirmed to not be a match to the missing 24-year-olds. Family and friends offered a $10,000 reward for information leading to Amy's whereabouts. They also mailed out 80,000 flyers to satellite volunteers and created a website dedicated to the search. It was clear to them that she did not disappear of her own volition. Authorities worked with Steve and their loved ones, hoping to find Amy alive and well. Fast forward to July 27th and law enforcement found that they were receiving 1,000 calls a day with potential tips. But in the end, none of them ever panned out. Lakes and mines around the area were searched, and horses, cavadier dogs, and the National Guard were utilized, all to no avail, and the leads quickly began to dry up. In the initial days of Amy's disappearance, it was widely believed that she had simply fallen victim to the elements, or even a bear or a mountain lion. It seemed an unspoken belief by all involved that she would be found alive. Maybe she simply fell and hurt her leg or ankle. However, authorities slowly began to suspect otherwise. There was no sign of Amy, no blood to indicate she may have been attacked, no clothing scraps. So, police turned their attention to Steve Bechtel. The hunch that law enforcement had began sprouting when they uncovered a series of journals in which Steve described violence towards women, especially his wife. These journals have never been made public, but reportedly contained themes of having power and control. 
During an interrogation in August of 1997, authorities falsely claimed that they had evidence to prove that he was guilty and had harmed his wife, to which Steve responded by terminating the interview. Later, when interviewed about the journals, Steve said they contained made-up song lyrics for his band and that they were unrelated to Amy in any way. He also provided an alibi for the time his wife went missing. He was rock climbing with friends, who backed up this story. A year later, in 1998, police clarified that Steve was not a central suspect in the case, but that they had wanted to clear him of suspicion in order to follow other leads. They added that they were unable to do so due to a lack of cooperation from Steve, who refused to speak to police after they lied to him about their evidence. He also denied the invitation to take a polygraph test. Steve said he didn't want to due to their unreliability. He also claimed that he had worked well with authorities until they had aggressively approached him and falsely claimed they had evidence against him. It's noted that Amy's brother and father were particularly angry that Steve continuously refused to take a polygraph test, and her brother claimed that just weeks before she went missing, he saw a suspicious bruise on his sister's arm. Amy allegedly said that sometimes, quote, Steve got a little rough, but she was unfazed by this and it did not appear to trouble her. There are conflicting statements about the couple's relationship, with some claiming it was idyllic, while others said that Steve could be extremely jealous and often belittled Amy, and that her demeanor changed around him. Steve and Amy's sisters appeared on the Geraldo Rivera show that same year, where he denied, again, being involved in the disappearance of his wife. At that time, Steve believed that his wife was being kept alive by someone infatuated with her, or that she possibly had amnesia. He described her as being a trusting person who generally thinks people have good intentions, perhaps implying that he felt this was her biggest flaw. Luminol testing was conducted in the home Amy and Steve shared, but turned up nothing. Rumors swirled that Steve had buried his wife under the driveway of their newly purchased home, but authorities found nothing when searching the area. In late August of 1997, the FBI, who'd become involved just five days after the disappearance, requested satellite photos from NASA of the 24th of July, when Amy went missing, but no further information could be provided from the photos. The same thing occurred in January of 1998, when satellite images taken by the Russian space station were also obtained by the FBI. Again, this search for answers proved fruitless. Although Amy's disappearance was profiled in several magazines, featured on Unsolved Mysteries, and overall received significant media attention at the time, it appears that this led to no new developments in the investigation. As leads fizzled out one by one, the case of Amy Bechtel began to grow cold. In June 2003, almost six years after Amy was last seen, a Timex Iron Man digital watch was found by a doctor and turned into police. There is no confirmation that this watch is definitely Amy's, but it certainly does resemble one that she owned at the time she went missing. A few years later in 2007, in an interview with the Billing Gazette, Sheriff Sergeant Roger Rizza stated, quote, I believe it was a homicide, and I believe what happened to her happened on the day she disappeared. In my mind, there is only one person I want to talk to, only one person 
who has refused to talk to law enforcement. And that is her husband. Dale Wayne Eaton, a convicted murderer on Wyoming's death row, has also been cited as a suspect in the case of Amy Bechtel. Eaton is believed to be responsible for a series of slayings dubbed the Great Basin Murders, and is imprisoned for the rape and murder of 18-year-old Lisa Kimmel in 1988. According to his brother, he had been in the area where Amy went missing. However, Eaton himself has refused to discuss the case, and his niece claimed that she was with him in Colorado on June 24th, 1997. Recent developments in Amy's disappearance are few and far between. The case was featured on the TV show Disappeared in 2013, and was also the suspect of an article in Runner's World in 2016. Amy's former husband, Steve Bechtel, has since gone on to remarry, and now has two children, and her father has since passed away. As of 2020, the case remains unsolved. And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own theories and speculations, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. If you're still hungry for true crime content, swing on by the Cold Case Detective Podcast, which is released every Monday. You can find a link to that down below. Thank you for watching. Stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.